Chapter 24 Friendship That Is True I loved Matya when we arrived at Mand, but when we left the town I loved him even more. I could not tell him before the barber how I felt when he cried out, Leave my friend! I took his hand and squeezed it as we tramped along. It's till death that has part now, Matya, I said. I knew that long ago, he replied, smiling at me with his great dark eyes. We heard that there was going to be an important cattle fair at Usel, so we decided to go and buy the cow. It was on our way to Shavannon. We played in every town and village on the road, and by the time we reached Usel, we had collected 240 francs. We had to economize in every possible manner to save this sum, but Matya was just as interested and eager to buy the animal as I. He wanted it to be white. I wanted brown in memory of poor Rosette. We both agreed, however, that she must be very gentle and give plenty of milk. As neither of us knew by what science one could tell a good cow, we decided to employ the services of a veterinarian. We had heard many stories of late how people had been deceived when buying a cow, and we did not want to run any risk. It would be an expense to employ a veterinarian, but that could not be helped. We had heard of one man who had bought an animal for a very low price, and when he had got her home, he found that she had a false tail. Another man, so we were told, had bought a cow which seemed to be in a very healthy state and had every appearance of giving plenty of milk, but she only gave two glasses of milk in 24 hours. By a little trick practiced by the cattle dealer, the animal was made to look as though she had plenty of milk. Matthias said that as far as the false tail went, we had nothing to fear, but he would hang onto the tail of every cow with all his might before we entered into any discussion with the seller. When I told him that if it were a real tail, he would probably get a kick in the stomach or on his head, his imagination cooled somewhat. It was several years since I had arrived at Ussel with Vitalis, where we had bought me my first pair of shoes with nails. Alas, out of the six of us who started, Capi and I were the only ones left. As soon as we got to the town, after having left our baggage at the same inn where I had stayed before with Vitalis and the dogs, we began to look about for a veterinarian. We found one, and he seemed very amused when we described to him the kind of a cow we wanted and asked if he would come and buy it for us. But what in the world do you two boys want with a cow, and have you got the money, he demanded. We told him how much money we had and how we got it, and that we were going to give a present, a surprise, to Mother Barberin of Chavanon, who had looked after me when I was a baby. He showed a very kindly interest then, and promised to meet us the next morning at the fair at seven o'clock. When we asked him his charges, he refused flatly to accept anything. He sent us off laughing and told us to be at the fair on time. The next day at daybreak, the town was full of excitement. From our room at the inn, we could hear the carts and wagons rolling over the cobblestones in the street below, and the cows bellowing, the sheep bleating, the farmers shouting at their animals and joking with each other. We jumped into our clothes and arrived at the fair at six o'clock for we wanted to make a selection before the veterinarian arrived. What beautiful cows they were, all colors and all sizes, some fat, some thin, 
and some with their calves. There were also horses and great fat pigs scooping holes in the ground and little plump suckling pigs squealing as though they were being skinned alive. But we had eyes for nothing but the cows. They stood very quiet, placidly chewing. They permitted us to make a thorough examination, merely blinking their eyelids. After one hour's inspection, we had found seventeen that pleased us. This for one quality, that for another, a third because she was red, two because they were white, which of course brought up a discussion between Matya and myself. The veterinarian arrived. We showed him the cows we liked. I think this one ought to be a good one, said Matya, pointing to a white animal. I think that is a better one, I said, indicating a red one. The veterinarian stopped the argument we had begun by ignoring both and passing on to a third one. This one had slim legs, red coat with brown ears and cheeks, eyes bordered with black, and a whitish circle around her muzzle. This is just the one you want, said the veterinarian. It was a beauty. Matya and I now saw that this was the best. The veterinarian asked a heavy-looking peasant who held the cow by a rope how much he wanted for it. Three hundred francs, he replied. Our mouth dropped. Three hundred francs. I made a sign to the veterinarian that we must pass on to another. He made another sign that he would drive a bargain. Then a lively discussion commenced between the veterinarian and the peasant. Our bidder went up to 170. The peasant came down to 280. When they reached this sum, the veterinarian began to examine the cow more critically. She had weak legs. Her neck was too short. Her horns too long. She hadn't any lungs and her teeth were not well formed. No, she certainly would not give much milk. The peasant said that as we knew so much about cows, he would let us have her for 250 francs because he felt sure she would be in good hands. Thereupon we began to get scared, for both Marty and I thought that it must be a poor cow then. Let us go and see some others, I suggested touching the veterinarian's arm. Hearing this, the man came down 10 francs. Then, little by little, he came down to 210 francs, but he stopped there. The veterinarian had nudged me and given me to understand that he was not serious in saying what he did about the cow, that it was an excellent animal, but then 210 francs was a large sum for us. During this time, Matya had gone behind her and pulled a long wisp of hair from her tail, and the animal had given him a kick that decided me. All right, 210 francs, I said, thinking the matter was settled. I held out my hand to take the rope. Have you brought a halter? asked the man. I'm selling my cow, not the halter. He said that as we were friends, he would let us have the halter for 60 sous. We needed the halter, so I parted with the 60 sous, calculating that we should now have but 20 sous left. I counted out the 213 francs. Then again, I stretched out my hand. Have you got a rope? inquired the man. I've sold you the halter but I haven't sold you the rope. The rope cost our last 20 sous. The cow was finally handed over to us, but we had not a sou left to buy food for the animal, nor for ourselves. After warmly thanking the veterinarian for his kindness, we shook hands and said goodbye to him and went back to the inn where we tied our cow up in the stable. As it was a very busy day in the town on account of the fair,
and people from all parts had come in. Matya and I thought that it would be better for each to go his own way and see what we could make. In the evening, Matya brought back four francs and I three francs fifty centimes. With seven francs fifty, we felt that we were again rich. We persuaded the kitchen maid to milk our cow, and we had the milk for supper. Never had we tasted anything so good. We were so enthusiastic about the quality of the milk that we went into the stable as soon as we had finished to embrace our treasure. The cow evidently appreciated this caress, for she licked our faces to show her appreciation. To understand the pleasure that we felt at kissing our cow and to be kissed by her, it must be remembered that neither Matya nor I had been overburdened with caresses. Our fate had not been that of the petted and pampered children who were obliged to defend themselves against too many kisses. The next morning we rose with the sun and started for Shavanon. How grateful I was to Matya for the help he had given me. Without him, I never could have collected such a big sum. I wanted to give him the pleasure of leading the cow, and he was very proud indeed to pull her by the rope while I walked behind. She looked very fine. She walked along slowly, swaying a little, holding herself like an animal that is aware of her value. I did not want to tire her out, so I decided not to get to Chavanon that evening late. Better, I thought, get there early in the morning. That is what we intended to do. This is what happened. I intended to stay the night in the village where I had spent my first night with Vitalis. When Capi, seeing me so unhappy, came to me and lay down beside me. Before reaching this village, we came to a nice green spot, and throwing down our baggage, we decided to rest. We made our cow to go down into a ditch. At first I wanted to hold her by the rope, but she seemed very docile and quite accustomed to grazing. So after a time, I twisted the rope around her horns and sat down near her to eat my supper. Naturally, we had finished eating long before she had, so after having admired her for some time and not knowing what to do next, we began to play a little game with each other. When we had finished our game, she was still eating. As I went to her, she pulled at the grass sharply, as much as to say that she was still hungry. Wait a little, said Matya. Don't you know that a cow can eat all day long, I replied. Well, wait a little. We got our baggage and instruments together, but still she would not stop eating. I'll play her piece on the cornet, said Matya, who found it difficult to keep still. There was a cow at Gassot Circuits, and she liked music. He commenced to play a lively march. At the first note, the cow lifted up her head, then suddenly, before I could throw myself at her horns to catch hold of the rope, she had gone off at a gallop. We raced after her as fast as we could, calling her to stop. I shouted to Capi to stop her. Now one cannot be endowed with every talent. A cattle driver's dog would have jumped at her nose, but Capi was a genius so he jumped at her legs. Naturally, this made her run faster. She raced back to the last village we had passed through. As the road was straight, we could see her in the distance, and we saw several people blocking her way and trying to catch hold of her. We slackened our speed, for we knew now that we should not lose her. All we should have to do would be to claim her from the good people who had stopped her going farther. There was quite a crowd gathered round her when we arrived on the scene, and instead of giving her up to us at once, as we expected they would, 
They asked us how we got the animal and where we got her. They insisted that we had stolen her and that she was running back to her owner. They declared that we ought to go to prison until the truth could be discovered. At the very mention of the word prison, I turned pale and began to stammer. I was breathless from my race and could not utter a word. At this moment a policeman arrived, and in a few words the whole affair was explained to him. As it did not seem at all clear, he decided to take possession of the cow and have us locked up until we could prove that it belonged to us. The whole village seemed to be in the procession, which ran behind us up to the town hall, which was also the station house. The mob pushed us and sneered at us and called us the most terrible names, and I do believe that if the officer had not defended us, they would have lynched us as though we were criminals of the deepest dye. The man who had charge of the town hall, and who was also jailer and sheriff, did not want to admit us. I thought, what a kind man. However, the policeman insisted that we be locked up, and the jailer finally turned the big key in a double-locked door and pushed us into the prison. Then I saw why he had made some difficulty about receiving us. He had put his provision of onions to dry in this prison, and they were strewn out on every bench. He heaped them all together in a corner. We were searched, our money, matches and knives taken from us. Then we were locked up for the night. I wish you'd give me a good slap, said Matya miserably, when we were alone. Box my ears or do something to me. I was as big a fool as you to let you play the cornet to a cow, I replied. Oh, I feel so bad about it, he said brokenly. Oh, poor cow, the prince's cow, he began to cry. Then I tried to console him by telling him that our situation was not very serious. We could prove that we bought the cow. We would send to sell for the veterinarian. He would be a witness. But if they say we stole the money to buy it, he said, we can't prove that we earned it, and when one is unfortunate, they always think you're guilty. That was true. And who'll feed her? Went on Matya dismally. Oh dear, I did hope that they would feed our poor cow. And what are we going to say when they question us in the morning, asked Matya. Tell them the truth. And then they'll hand you over to Barberan. Or if Mother Barberan is alone at her place and they question her to see if we are lying, we can't give her a surprise. Oh, dear. You've been away from Mother Barberan for a long time. How do you know if she isn't dead? This terrible thought had never occurred to me. And yet poor Vitalis had died. How was it? I had not thought that I might lose her. Why didn't you say that before, I demanded. Because when I'm happy, I don't have those ideas. I have been so happy at the thought of offering your cow to Mother Barberin and thinking how pleased she'd be. I never thought before that she might be dead. It must have been the influence of this dismal room, for we could only see the darkest side of everything. And dog, cried Matya, starting up and throwing out his arms. If Mother Barberin is dead, and that awful Barberin is alive, and we go there, he'll take our cow and keep it himself. It was late in the afternoon, when the door was thrown open, and an old gentleman with white hair came into our prison. Now, you rogues, answer this gentleman, said the jailer who accompanied him. That's all right, that's all right, said the gentleman, who was the public prosecutor. I'll question this one. With his finger he indicated me. You take charge of the other. 
I'll question him later. I was alone with the prosecutor. Fixing me with his eye, he told me that I was accused of having stolen a cow. I told him that we bought the animal at the fair at Usel, and I named the veterinarian who had assisted us in the purchase. That will be verified, he replied. And now, what made you buy the cow? I told him that I was offering it as a token of affection to my foster mother. Her name, he demanded. Madame Barberin of Chavanon, I replied. The wife of a mason who met with a serious accident in Paris a few years ago. I know her. That also will be verified. Oh, I became very confused. Seeing my embarrassment, the prosecutor pressed me with questions, and I had to tell him that if he made inquiries of Madame Barberin, our cow would not be a surprise after all, and to make it a surprise had been our chief object. But in the midst of my confusion, I felt a great satisfaction to know that Mother Barberin was still alive, and in the course of the questions that were put to me, I learned that Barberin had gone back to Paris some time ago. This delighted me. Then came the question that Matia had feared. But how did you get all the money to buy the cow? I explained that from Paris to Vars and from Vars to Ussel, we had collected this sum, sou by sou. But what were you doing in Vars? he asked. Then I was forced to tell him that I had been in a mine accident. Which of you two is Remy? he asked in a softened voice. I am, sir, I replied. To prove that you tell me how the catastrophe occurred. I read the whole account of it in the papers. You cannot deceive me. I can tell if you really are me. Now be careful. I could see that he was feeling very lenient towards us. I told him my experience in the mine, and when I had finished my story, I thought from his manner, which was almost affectionate, that he would give us our freedom at once. But instead... He went out of the room, leaving me alone, a prey to my thoughts. After some time, he returned with Matya. I am going to have your story investigated at Utsel, he said. If it is true, as I hope it is, you will be free tomorrow. And our cow, asked Matya anxiously, will be given back to you. I didn't mean that, replied Matya, but who'll feed her, who'll milk her? Don't worry, youngster, said the prosecutor. Matthias smiled contentedly. And then if they milk our cow, he asked, may we have some milk for supper? You certainly shall. As soon as we were alone, I told Matthias the great news that had almost made me forget that we were locked up. Mother Barbarin is alive, and Barbarin has gone to Paris, I said. Ah, oh, then the prince's cow will make a triumphal entry. He commenced to dance and sing with joy. Carried away by his gaiety, I caught him by the hands, and Capi, who until then had been lying in a corner, quiet and thoughtful, jumped up and took his place between us, standing up on his hind paws. We then threw ourselves into such a wild dance that the jailer rushed in to see what was the matter, probably afraid for his onions. He told us to stop, but he spoke very differently to what he had before. By that, I felt that we were not in a very serious plight. I had further proof of this when a moment later he came in carrying a big bowl of milk, our cow's milk, and that was not all. He brought a large piece of white bread and some cold veal, which he said the prosecutor had sent us. Decidedly, prisons were not so bad after all. Dinner and lodging for nothing. Early the next morning, the prosecutor came in with our friend the veterinarian, who had wanted to come himself to see that we got our freedom. 
Before we left, the prosecutor handed us an efficient stamped paper. See, I'm giving you this, he said. You are two silly boys to go tramping through the country without any papers. I have asked the mayor to make out this passport for you. This is all you will need to protect you in the future. Good luck, boys. You shook hands with us, and so did the veterinarian. We had entered the village miserably, but we left in triumph. Leading our cow by the rope and walking with heads held high, we glanced over our shoulders at the villagers who were standing on their doorsteps staring at us. I did not want to tire our cow, but I was in a hurry to get to Chavanon that same day, so we set out briskly. By evening, we had almost reached my old home. Matya had never tasted pancakes, and I had promised him some as soon as we arrived. On the way, I bought one pound of butter, two pounds of flour, and a dozen eggs. We had now reached the spot where I had asked Vitalis to let me rest, so that I could look down on Mother Barberin's house as I thought for the last time. Take the rope, I said to Matya. With a spring, I was on the parapet. Nothing had been changed in our valley. It looked just the same. The smoke was even coming out of the chimney. As it came towards us, it seemed to me I could smell oak leaves. I jumped down from the parapet and hugged Matya, Kapi sprang up on me, and I squeezed them both tight. Come, let's get there as quickly as possible now, I cried. What a pity, sighed Matya. If this brute only loved music, what a triumphal entry we could make. As we arrived at one of the turns of the road, we saw Mother Barbarin come out of her cottage and go off in the direction of the village. What was to be done? We had intended to spring a surprise upon her. We should have to think of something else. Knowing that the door was always on the latch, I decided to go straight into the house after tying our cow up in the cow shed. We found the shed full of wood now, so we heaped it up in a corner and put our cow in poor Rosette's place. When we got into the house, I said to Matya, Now I'll take this seat by the fire, so that she'll find me here. When she opens the gate, you'll hear it creak. Then you hide yourself with Kapi. I sat down in the very spot where I had always sat on a winter night. I crouched down making myself look as small as possible, so as to look as near like Mother Barbarin's little Remy as I could. From where I sat, I could watch the gate. I looked round the kitchen. Nothing was changed. Everything was in the same place. A pane of glass that I had broken still had the bit of paper pasted over it, black with smoke and age. Suddenly, I saw a white bonnet. The gate creaked. Hide yourself quickly, I said to Matya. I made myself smaller and smaller. The door opened and Mother Barberin came in. She stared at me. Who is there, she asked. I looked at her without answering. She stared back at me. Suddenly, she began to tremble. Oh, Lord, it is my Remy, she murmured. I jumped up and caught her in my arms. Mama, my boy, my boy, was all that she could say as she laid her head on my shoulder. Some minutes passed before we had controlled our emotion. I wiped away her tears. Why, how have you grown, my boy, she cried, holding me at arm's length. You're so big and so strong. Oh, my Remy. 
A stifled snort reminded me that Matya was under the bed. I called him. He crept out. This is Matya, I said, my brother. Oh, then you found your parents, she cried. No, he's my chum, but just like a brother. And this is Kapi, I added, after she had greeted Matya. Come and salute your master's mother, Capitan. Kapi got on his hind paws and bowed gravely to Mother Barbarin. She laughed heartily. Her tears had quite vanished. Matya made me a sign to spring our surprise. Let's go and see how the garden looks, I said. I have kept your bit just as you arranged it, she said. For I knew that some day you would come back. Did you get my Jerusalem artichoke? Ah, oh, you planted them to surprise me. You always liked to give surprises, my boy. The moment had come. Is the cow shed just the same since poor Rousset went? I asked. Oh, no. I keep my wood there now. We had reached the shed by this time. I pushed open the door, and at once our cow, who was hungry, began to bellow. A cow! A cow in my cowshed! cried Mother Barbaran. Matya and I burst out laughing. It's a surprise, I cried, and a better one than the Jerusalem artichokes. She looked at me in a dazed, astonished manner. Yes, it's a present for you. I did not come back with empty hands to the mamma who was so good to the little lost boy. This is to replace Rosette. Matya and I bought it for you with the money we earned. Oh, the dear boys, she cried, kissing us both. She now went inside the shed to examine her present. At each discovery, she gave a shriek of delight. What a beautiful cow, she exclaimed. Then she turned round suddenly. Say, you must be very rich now. I should say so, laughed Matya. We've got 58 sous left. I ran to the house to fetch the milk pail, and while in the house I arranged the butter, eggs and flour in a display on the table, then ran back to the shed. How delighted she was when she had a pail three-quarters full of beautiful frothy milk. There was another burst of delight when she saw the things on the table ready for pancakes, which I told her we were dying to have. You must have known that Barbarin was in Paris then, she said. I explained to her how I had learned so. I will tell you why he had gone, she said, looking at me significantly. Let's have the pancakes first, I said. Don't let's talk about him. I have not forgotten how he sold me for 40 francs. And it was my fear of him, the fear that he would sell me again, that kept me from writing to tell you news of myself. Oh, boy, I thought that was why, she said. But you mustn't speak unkindly of Barbarin. Well, let's have the pancakes now, I said, hugging her. We all sat briskly to prepare the ingredients, and before long, Matya and I were cramming pancakes down our throats. Matya declared that he had never tasted anything so fine. As soon as we had finished, one we held out our plates for another, and Capi came in for his share. Mother Barbarin was scandalized that we should give a dog pancakes, but we explained to her that he was the chief actor in our company and a genius, and that he was treated by us with every consideration. Later, when Matya was out getting some wood ready for the next morning, she told me why Barberin had gone to Paris. Your family is looking for you, she said, almost in a whisper. That's why Barberin has gone up to Paris about. He is looking for you. My family, I exclaimed. Oh, I have a family of my own? Speak, tell me, Mother Barberin, dear Mother Barberin. 
Then I got frightened. I did not believe that my family was looking for me. Barbarian was trying to find me so that he could sell me again. I would not be sold. I told my fears to Mother Barbarian, but she said no, my family was looking for me. Then she told me that a gentleman came to the house who spoke with a foreign accent, and he asked Barbarian what has become of the little baby that he had found many years ago in Paris. Barbarian asked him what business that was of his. The answer was just like Barbarian would give. You know from the bakehouse, one can hear everything that is said in the kitchen, said Mother Barbarian. And when I knew that they were talking about you, I naturally listened. I got nearer, and then I trod on a twig of wood that broke. Oh, we are not alone, said the gentleman to Barbarian. Yes, we are. That's only my wife, he replied. The gentleman that said... It was very warm in the kitchen, and that they could talk better outside. They went out, and it was three hours later when Barbarian came back alone. I tried to make him tell me everything, but the only thing he would say was that this man was looking for you, but that he was not your father, and that he had given him one hundred francs. Probably he's had more since. From this and the fine clothes you wore when he found you, we think your parents must be rich. Then Jerome said he had to go off to Paris, she continued, to find the musician who hired you. This musician said that a letter sent to Rue Mouffetard to a man named Garofoli would reach him. And haven't you heard from Barbarin since he went, I asked, surprised, that he had sent no news. Not a word, she said. I don't even know where he is living in the city. Mattia came in just then. I told him excitedly that I had a family and that my parents were looking for me. He said he was pleased for me, but he didn't seem to share my joy and enthusiasm. I slept little that night. Mother Barberin had told me to start off to Paris and find Barberin at once and not delay my parents' joy in finding me. I had hoped that I could spend several days with her, and yet I felt that she was right. I would have to see Lise before going. That could be managed, for we could go to Paris by way of the canal. As Lise's uncle kept the locks, and lived in a cottage on the banks, we could stop and see her. I spent that day with Mother Barberin, and in the evening we discussed what I would do for her when I was rich. She was to have all the things she wanted. There was not a wish of hers that should not be gratified when I had money. The cow that you have given me in your poor days will be more to me than anything you can give me when you are rich, Remy, she said fondly. The next day, after bidding dear Mother Barberin a loving farewell, we started to walk along the banks of the canal. Mattia was very thoughtful. I knew what was the matter. He was sorry that I had rich parents, as though that would make any difference in our friendship. I told him, that he should go to college, and that he should study music with the very best masters. But he shook his head sadly. I told him that he should live with me as my brother, and that my parents would love him just the same, because he was my friend. But still he shook his head. In the meantime, as I had not my rich parents' money to spend, we had to play in all the villages through which we passed to get money for our food. And I also wanted to make some money to buy a present for Lise. Mother Barberin had said that she valued the cow more than anything I could give her when I became rich. And perhaps, I thought, Lise would feel the same about the gift. I wanted to give her a doll. 
Fortunately, a doll would not cost so much as a cow. The next town we came to, I bought her a lovely doll with fair hair and blue eyes. Walking along the banks of the canal, I often thought of Mrs. Milligan and Arthur and their beautiful barge and wondered if we should meet it on the canal. But we never saw it. One evening, we could see in the distance the house where Liz lived. It stood amongst the trees and seemed to be in an atmosphere of mist. We could see the window lit up by the flames with a big fire inside. The reddish light fell across our path as we drew nearer. My heart beat quickly. I could see them inside having supper. The door and the window were shut, but there were no curtains to the window, and I looked in and saw Liz sitting beside her aunt. I signed to Mati and Kapi to be silent, and then taking my harp from my shoulder, I put it on the ground. Oh yes, whispered Matya, a serenade. What a fine idea. No, not you. I'll play alone. I struck the first notes of my Neapolitan song. I did not sing, for I did not want my voice to betray me. As I played, I looked at Liz. She raised her head quickly, and her eyes sparkled. Then I commenced to sing. She jumped from her chair and ran to the door. In a moment, she was in my arms. Aunt Catherine then came out and invited us into supper. Liz quickly placed two plates on the table. If you don't mind, I said, will you put a third? We have a little friend with us. And I pulled out the doll from my bag and placed her in the chair next to Liz. The look that she gave me, I shall never forget. Chapter 25 Mother, Brothers and Sisters If I had not been in a hurry to get to Paris, I should have stayed a long time with Liz. We had so much to say to each other and could say so little in the language that we used. She told me with signs how good her uncle and aunt had been to her and what beautiful rides she had in the barges and I told her how I had nearly perished in the mine where Alexis worked and that my family were looking for me. That was the reason that I was hurrying to Paris and that was why it had been impossible for me to go and see Etienne. Naturally, most of the talk was about my family, my rich family, and all I would do when I had money. I would make her father, brothers and sisters, and above all herself, happy. Liz, unlike Matya, was delighted. She quite believed that if one had money, one ought to be very happy, because would not her father have been happy if he had only had the money to pay his debts? We took long walks, all three of us, Liz, Matya and I, accompanied by the doll and Kapi. I was very happy those few days. In the evening, we sat in the front of the house when it was not too damp and before the fireplace when the mist was thick. I played the harp and Matya played his violin or cornet. Liz preferred the harp, which made me very proud. When the time came and we had to separate, and go to bed, I played and sang her my Neapolitan song. Yet we had to part and go on our way. I told her that I would come back for her soon. My last words to her were, I'll come and fetch you, in a carriage drawn by four horses. And she quite believed me, and she made a motion as though she were cracking a whip to urge on the horses. She also, the same as I, could see my riches and my horses and carriages.
I was so eager to get to Paris now that if it had not been for Matya, I would have stopped only to collect what was absolutely necessary for our food. We had no cow to buy now, no doll. It was not for me to take money to my rich parents. Let us get all we can, said Matya, forcing me to take my harp, for we don't know if we shall find Barberin at once. One would think that you had forgotten that night when you were dying of hunger. Oh, I haven't, I said lightly, but we are sure to find him at once. You wait. Yes, but I have not forgotten how I leaned up against the church that day when you found me. Ah, I don't want to be hungry in Paris. We'll dine all the better when we get to my parents, I replied. Well, let's work just as though we are buying another cow, urged Matya. This was very wise advice, but I must admit that I did not sing with the same spirit. To get the money to buy a cow for Mother Barberin or a doll for Liz was quite a different matter. How lazy you'll be when you're rich, said Matya. The nearer we got to Paris, the gayer I became, and the more melancholy grew Matya. As I had assured him that we should not be parted, I wondered why he should be sad now. Finally, when we reached the gates of Paris, he told me how great was his fear of Garofoli, and that if he saw him, he knew that he would take him again. You know how afraid you are of Barberin, so you can imagine how I fear Garofoli. If he is out of prison, he'll be sure to catch me. Oh, my poor head, how he used to bang it. And then he will part us. Of course, he'd like to have you as one of his pupils, but he could not force you to stay. But he has a right to me. He is my uncle. I had not thought of Garofoli. I arranged with Matya that I should go to the various places that Mother Barberin had mentioned as to where I might find Barberin. Then I would go to the room of Tar, and after that he should meet me at seven o'clock outside the Notre Dame Cathedral. We parted as though we were never going to meet again. Matya went in one direction, I in another. I had written down on paper the names of the places where Barberin had lived before. I went first to one place, then to another. At one lodging house, they told me that he had lived there four years ago, but that he had not been there since. The landlord told me that he'd like to catch the rogue, for he owed him one week's rent. I grew very despondent. There was only one place left for me to inquire. That was at a restaurant. The man who kept the place said that he had not seen him for a very long time, but one of the customers sitting eating at the table called out that he had been living at the Hotel du Cantal at late. Before going to the Hotel du Cantal, I went to Garofoli's place to see if I could find out something about him so that I could take back some news to poor Matya. When I reached the yard, I saw, as on my first visit, the same old man hanging up dirty rags outside the door. Has Garofoli returned? I asked. The old man looked at me without replying, then began to cough. I could see that he would not tell me anything unless I let him know that I knew all about Garofoli. You don't mean to say he is still in prison, I exclaimed. Why? I thought he'd got out long ago. No, he's got another three months yet. Garofoli three more months in prison. Matya could breathe. I left the horrible yard as quickly as possible and hurried off to the Hotel du Cantal. I was full of hope and joy and quite disposed to think kindly of Barberin. If it had not been for Barberin, I might have died of cold and hunger 
when I was a baby. It was true he had taken me from Mother Barbaran to sell me to a stranger, but then he had no liking for me, and perhaps he was forced to do it for the money. After all, it was through him that I was finding my parents. So now I ought not to harbor any bitterness against him. I soon reached the Hotel du Cantal, which was only a hotel in name, being nothing better than a miserable lodging house. I want to see a man named Barberin. He comes from Chavanon, I said to a dirty old woman who sat at a desk. She was very deaf and asked me to repeat what I had said. Do you know a man named Barberin? I shouted. Then she threw up her hands to heaven so abruptly that the cat, sleeping on her knees, sprang down in terror. Alas, alas, she cried. Then she added, Are you the boy he was looking for? Oh, you know, I cried excitedly. Well, where is Barberin? Dead, she replied laconically. I leaned on my harp. Dead? I cried loud enough for her to hear. I was dazed. How should I find my parents now? You're the boy they're looking for. I'm sure you are, said the old woman again. Yes, yes, I'm the boy. Where's my family? Can you tell me? I don't know any more than just what I've told you, my boy. I should say my young gentleman. What did Barberin say about my parents? Oh, do tell me, I said imploringly. She threw her arms towards heaven. Ah, oh, if that isn't a story. Well, tell it me. What is it? At this moment, a woman who looked like a servant came forward. The mistress of the Hotel du Cantal turned to her. If this isn't an affair... This boy here, this young gentleman, is the man Barberin talked so much about. But didn't Barberin speak to you about my family, I asked. I should say so, more than a hundred times. A very rich family it is that you've got, my boy, my young gentleman. And where do they live, and what is their name? Barberin wouldn't tell us anything. He was that mysterious. He wanted to get all the reward for himself. Didn't he leave any papers? No, nothing except one that said he came from Chavanon. If we hadn't found that, we couldn't have let his wife know he's dead. Oh, you did let her know. Sure, why not? I could learn nothing from the old woman. I turned slowly towards the door. Where are you going? she asked. Back to my friend. Ah, you have a friend. Does he live in Paris? We got to Paris only this morning. Well, if you haven't a place to lodge in, why don't you come here? You will be well taken care of, and it's an honest house. If your family get tired of waiting to hear from Barberin, they might come here, and then they'll find you. What I say is for your own interest. What age is your friend? He's a little younger than I. Just think, two boys on the streets of Paris. You could get into such a bad place. Now this is real respectable on account of the locality. The Hotel du Cantal was one of the dirtiest lodging houses that I had ever seen, and I had seen some pretty dirty ones. But what the old woman said was worth considering. Besides, we could not be particular. I had not found my family in their beautiful Paris mansion yet. Matya had been right to want to get all the money we could on our way to the city. What should we have done if we had not our 17 francs in our pockets? How much will you charge for a room for my friend and myself, I asked. Ten cents a day. That's not much. Well, we'll come back tonight. 
come back early. Paris is a bad place at night for boys, she called after me. Night was falling. The street lamps were lit. I had a long way to walk to the cathedral, where I had to meet Matya. All my high spirits had vanished. I was very tired, and all around me seemed gloomy. In this great Paris, full of light and noise, I felt so utterly alone. Would I ever find my own people? Was I ever to see my real mother and my real father? When I reached the cathedral, I had still twenty minutes to wait for Matya. I felt this night that I needed his friendship more than ever. What a comfort it was to think that I was going to see him so gay, so kind, such a friend. A little before seven, I heard a quick bark. Then out of the shadows jumped Capi. He sprang onto my knees and licked me with his soft, wet tongue. I hugged him in my arms and kissed his cold nose. It was not long before Matya appeared. In a few words, I told him that Barbarin was dead and that there was now little hope that I could ever find my family. Then he gave me all the sympathy of which I was in need. He tried to console me and told me not to despair. He wished as sincerely as I that we could find my parents. We returned to the Hotel du Cantal. The next morning I wrote to Mother Barbarin to express my grief for her loss and to ask her if she had had any news from her husband before he died. By return mail she sent me word that her husband had written to her from the hospital where they had taken him and said that if he did not get better she was to write to Greth and Galleys, Lincoln Square, London, for they were the lawyers who were looking for me. He told her that she was not to take any steps until she was sure that he was dead. We must go to London, said Matya, when I had finished reading the letter that the priest had written for her. If the lawyers are English, that shows that your parents are English. Oh, I'd rather be the same as Liz and the others. But, I added, if I'm English, I'll be the same as Mrs. Milligan and Arthur. I'd rather you were Italian, said Matya. In a few minutes, our baggage was ready, and we were off. It took us eight days to hike from Paris to Bologna, stopping at the principal towns en route. When we reached Bologna, we had 32 francs in our purse. We took passage on a cargo boat that was going the next day to London. What a rough journey we had! Poor Matya declared that he would never go on the sea again. When at last we were steaming up the Thames, I begged him to get up and see the wonderful sights, but he implored me to let him alone. At last the engine stopped and the ropes were thrown to the ground and we landed in London. I knew very little English, but Matya had picked up quite a great deal from an Englishman who had worked with him at the Gasso Circus. When we landed, he at once asked the policeman to direct us to Lincoln Square. It seemed to be a very long way. Many times we thought that we had lost ourselves, but again upon making inquiries, we found that we were going in the right direction. Finally we reached Temple Bar, and a few steps further we came to Green Square. My heart beat so quickly when we stopped before the door of Greth and Gully's office that I had to ask Matya to wait a moment until I had recovered myself. After Matya had stated to the clerk my name and my business, we were shown at once into the private office of the head of the firm, Mr. Greth. Fortunately, this gentleman spoke French, so I was able to speak to him myself.
He questioned me upon every detail of my life. My answers evidently convinced him that I was the boy he was looking for, for he told me that I had a family living in London and that he would send me to them at once. One moment, sir. Have I a father? I asked, scarcely able to say the word father. Yes, not only a father, but a mother, brothers and sisters, he replied. Oh! He touched a bell, and the clerk appeared, whom he told to take charge of us. Oh, I had forgotten, said Mr. Grath. Your name is Driscoll. Your father's name is Mr. John Driscoll. In spite of Mr. Grath's ugly face, I think I could have jumped at him and hugged him if he had given me time. But with his hand, he indicated the door, and we followed the clerk.